Well, it's been a while since I've been here, at least in the past year I've been here. It's always a, a pleasure to be in this place, especially this building. It really reminds me of the, of the church in which my wife and I had our wedding, uh, very similar to this. Um, so when I come here, it reminds me of her. That's probably why she doesn't come here with me. Fair enough. All right, we're looking at Isaiah 53 this morning. Now, when I say Isaiah 53, I'm speaking of the end of Isaiah 52, the final three verses of that passage going on through the end of 53. Scholars, commentators refer to this passage as the song, one of the servant songs of Isaiah where uh, the suffering servant in particular is highlighted. We'll see that very clearly as we hopefully are able to work through this passage this fall. In the context though, Isaiah 51 through Isaiah 55, you have the proclamation of the coming gospel of Jesus Christ. You have the promise that God is bringing good news and then at the end you have the promise that a new covenant will be established. And right in the middle, you see the servant who will establish this gospel and this covenant. Now this morning we're only going to look at the first three verses beginning in Isaiah 49 verse 13. So let me read this for us. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations and kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard they understand. The word of the Lord. We all know what it's like to go through a period of trial. We know what it's like to be humbled by something in our life, whether it's a relationship, whether it's sin, uh, whether it's a job that we lose. We all know what it's like to go through a period where we feel pressed down. We feel, we, we feel like we're in what John Bunyan called the valley of humiliation. But we also know what it's like coming out on the other side of that valley to see that there is a, a, a brighter day. There's a day in which the sun shines again. And as we look back, we see that God moves in mysterious ways. We sang that earlier, didn't we? We see that God used that to bring us to a point that made us what we should be in the sense of more like what we should be. Not necessarily what we want, or not necessarily to go back to some nostalgic idea of what life used to be like. But he brings us to a point out of that humiliation that he has lifted us up and exalted us to a better state. The same is true of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we need to understand his humanity in this way. He is like us in every way, yet without sin. 
he went through a period of humiliation, the greatest of humiliations, and now is exalted to the greatest place at the right hand of God. He has done that so that he will be the one who is able to redeem us out of humiliation and bring us to the presence of God. Everything we go through is not lost on Christ. He's been there. He's been there in degrees that we simply cannot understand. But he's been there so that we can look at him and know that we have a sympathetic Savior. So when we think about the exaltation of Christ and the humiliation of Christ that we see here, remember this. You have a sympathetic Savior. Now, we're first going to consider the exaltation of Christ. In these verses here, you see how it begins in verse 13. This servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. So here's this idea. The exaltation is shown to us here at the beginning. And then we have a, a picture of the exaltation at the end of Isaiah 53. But all in between, we have the humiliation of the servant. So this whole song is about the humiliation of Christ, but it is bookended by exaltation. So we're going to consider this exaltation first before we get to the humiliation. The servant will bring salvation to God's people. And he's introduced in a remarkable manner in verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. This word act wisely is a word that says he shall succeed. That's what it means. He shall succeed in a manner that is good and right. It's the idea of him doing something that is always in honor of God and in the right way it should be. He carries out God's purposes. And because he does this, he will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. This height imagery is very important in this book. This lifted up high and exalted. We find these elsewhere in Isaiah and in every time that it's used in Isaiah, it's referring to God. This servant is God. He will be high and lifted up. He is the one that Isaiah saw in chapter 6 where Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up. When he saw the vision of God on the throne and the smoke filled the temple and he stood there before the glorious majesty of the Almighty and he said, woe is me. I am ruined. I'm an unclean man. My lips are unclean. I live among a people whose lips are unclean. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. In the Gospel of John, the Apostle writes in chapter 12 that the glory that Isaiah saw is the glory of Christ, is Christ himself. There's no question in scripture who this is. 
What did Isaiah see on that throne? And what does he see here? Even if he doesn't fully grasp it, he sees the Messiah who is exalted, but will be humbled and humiliated before he is exalted back to the throne of God. What Isaiah saw was a coming event. And we now know it as Christians as an accomplished reality. We have seen the, the uh, incarnation, God the Son becoming man and taking to himself human flesh and nature in a way that accurately uh, is all of our human nature and flesh. It, it, it is what we are and yet he is without sin. We've seen the incarnation. We've seen the man live in that estate of humiliation and be crucified and raised from the dead and exalted to the right hand of God. We've seen that savior that the book of Isaiah reveals. We're on this side of history. We've seen a powerful work of God. We've seen a faithful work of God. And we've seen a wise Savior who lived in the fear of the Lord on this earth. And he is now enthroned as king. Revelation chapter 1, we find John saying that he had this vision and he heard this voice and it sounded like the roar of many waters, which is what God's voice is pictured as in Ezekiel. He hears this majestic sound and he turns and he looks and he sees the picture of a divine king. He sees this figure, this glory. And it was Christ and he said, he he described him in such a way that it wasn't the humiliated man who lived on this earth, but it was God glorified in human body. And he was overwhelmed. And you know what the apostle John did when he saw him? He fell at his feet as though dead. That's the Savior we're looking at here. That's the one who will be exalted among all, among all the creation, among all the universe, among all the angelic beings. He is now exalted and every knee will bow. So we need to have the perspective of this suffering servant is now at this point in our lives, in history, he is no longer in an estate of humiliation. He has accomplished this work and he is now reigning. And what does that mean? It means everything that happens in your life, in this world, And everything that has and will is governed by the hand that was nailed to the cross. And if he lovingly gave up that royal nature, he had that royal position and became the servant to the point of death, even death on the cross, And now he's exalted, reigning over every aspect of your life. Can you not see that he is a loving king? What king lays down his life? He did. 
And you can trust his ruling of your life, whether you understand what's going on or not. Because guess what? You may think you understand part of it, but you don't. God moves in mysterious ways. Now, as we move on to uh, the exaltation of Christ, we need to hear what one writer says. He says, as Jesus' exaltation and glorification were of the highest measure, so his degradation will be of the deepest measure. And that degradation is shown to us in verse 14. It's as though this verse sets the tone as a preface for what will come in the rest of chapter 53. He says, verse 14, as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, beyond the form, his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so he shall sprinkle many nations, kings shall shut their mouths upon him. So you've got this idea, you've got exaltation, and then you have this parenthetical statement that seems completely out of place. And then you have verse 15, back to the exaltation. What's going on here? Seems that this is a literary technique to say that exaltation surrounds the life of Christ and in the middle you've got this humiliation. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Yeah, I came up with that, but somebody surely has seen that somewhere before. It's like this is a snapshot here before we really focus on the degree to which he will be crushed. So what is this parenthetical statement? It's very odd because as many of them as were astonished, and then all of a sudden, his appearance. You change to the appearance of the servant. And so what's being, what's being done here? Well, we see that the, the writer wants us to know that though this is a king, we will be appalled at what we see. And the word here, astonished, is the idea of appalled. Appalled in the sense of shuddering. It means to shudder. You know, when something just, just looks awful to you or in a negative sense and you just, Ooh. that's the idea. You shudder at it. As many shuddered at you talking to the servant. And then this, this parenthetical statement says, he was marred beyond human semblance, which means resemblance. His form, human body, his form beyond that of the children of mankind. What this is doing is this is saying that what would happen to him would be he would be so disfigured and have all of the, the evil and, and hardship of mankind thrown upon him that he won't even look like a human being. He'll be so marred and, and torn and ripped. What is this implying? This is speaking of the crucifixion. There's an article in the Journal of the American Medical Association Three writers are, are talking about the physical death of Jesus Christ. They've done their research 
terms of the times of the Romans and all that, what was going on, the practice of flogging, all these things. And based on what they understood, they came back to the scriptures and they began to talk about what physically happened to him. We're told about the flogging first. This flogging took place where you had this handle and out of it came these long, long leather straps. And all the way down these leather straps, they would, they would tie into them balls of metal and sheep bones or other kind of bones all the way down so that every time somebody was flogged, it would rip and it would bruise. So you can imagine why one of the worst punishment is to have 39 lashes. And here we're told that he experienced this over and over and over again. Let me read to you what these writers say. They say, as Romans, as Roman soldiers repeatedly struck the victim, victim's back with full force, the iron balls would cut deep or would cause deep contusions and the leather thongs and the sheep bones would cut into the skin and subcutaneous tissues. Then as the flogging continued, the lacerations would tear the underlying skeletal muscles and produce quivering ribbons of, of bleeding flesh. Pain and blood loss generally set the stage for circulatory shock. The extent of blood loss may well have determined how long the victim would survive on the cross. That's the description of flogging. After that, they mocked our Savior with a kingly robe, this one who was exalted, this one that scripture says will be exalted. They put a kingly robe in his hand, they put a so-called scepter, and they beat him with a wooden staff in the head. They put a crown of thorns around him. They spit upon him. They forced him to carry the crossbar at a time in which he physically could not do it, so they pressed another into the service. The writers say once again, although the Romans did not invent crucifixion, they perfected it as a form of torture and capital punishment that was designed to produce a slow death with maximum pain and suffering. It was one of the most disgraceful and cruel methods of execution and usually was reserved only for slaves, foreigners, and revolutionaries, and the vilest of criminals. What verse 14 tells us in the vernacular, and I mean this in utmost reverence, he was beat to a bloody pulp. There's no other way to express it. There's no other way to say it. But I want you to know that this picture of Christ, it's not a sentimental picture of Christ. It's not one of those pictures of him that we have as somebody frolicking down the road or, or this idea of a good uh, you know, Santa Claus-like figure. This is a bloody, sacrificial death. 
It's one of those things that if you saw it happen before you, you would be traumatized for life. This, this is no made up story. This is real. This is what you would have gone through were you there and they did it to you. But in God's kindness, they did it to him. Sometimes there's things that just strike you from God's word. And the crucifixion of Christ needs to be the most important things that strike us and horrify us. Horrify us. A human being, beings like us treated him this bad and he still loved us. And said from the cross, forgive them. The language of this verse, though, we need to be careful that we don't limit it to physical suffering. The, the language of this verse conveys an expression of his whole humiliation. And you, you can imagine, hopefully we can imagine in some sense, the purity of God in the flesh. And yet he goes through this treatment. And as a human being, what do you think he's thinking? What do you think the feelings he's experienced, his emotions? He's not a superman. He's feeling the pain and feeling the sorrow. The shame of humanity is being poured upon him and it doesn't feel good because he's never known shame. He doesn't know what it's like to be separated from his father. But there comes a time at which he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He suffered in soul. And the wrath of God being poured poured upon him at the cross. There's no, greater, there's no greater suffering in the soul of a human being than this, and it is a suffering that is infinite. How can we understand that? It's not understandable. It's the fullness of God's eternal wrath put on his son because only God himself can bear that wrath. We're told that this happened even though, verse 9 of chapter 53, he had done no violence, no, nor was there any deceit found in his mouth. He was innocent. The level of suffering that we're thinking of is beyond comprehension. Many people have suffered in history and suffered greatly to the point where they just wanted to die, the suffering was so great. Nobody suffered ever as a human being in the fullness of what he went through. And this is Christ's commitment. If you look at verse 10, it says it was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was God's desire to crush his son 
Why? Because he's going to make himself a guilt offering. Christ's commitment pleased God. And he suffered to the extent so that none of his people will suffer in this way for eternity. Yes, there's, there's present suffering, and it's going to continue, and it's not going to get easier. With each passing year, with each passing decades, decade, it gets worse in many respects. But the knowledge, the growing knowledge of the love and grace of Christ it more than makes up for the sufferings. And how is that so? Because it won't be long when we see, when we see him as he is. It won't be long. Herein is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us. He made Christ the propitiation for our sins. What do we learn from the humiliation of Christ? One of the things we learn is this, that he has gone to the deeper depths than you will ever go because he never wants you to taste that judgment. He never wants you to taste that eternal suffering that he took on himself. Does that show you that he loves you? Does that show you that if you are not his, that he will love you if you come to him? Does that not show us more and more that even though doubts come as we wrestle with faith, when we keep looking at him and looking at what he did, went through, when we keep looking at him hanging there and thinking he said it is finished, it's done, it's over, he loves me, he's raised from the dead and he's coming back. How, how can we keep staring into the cross and not be transformed? Maybe the problem is is we're not looking at him enough. We're not seeing his love enough. We're not not thinking about that, how that love is for, for me personally, you personally, and how it affects you and how you live. That his love is set upon you, his gaze is upon you. Not as a judge, but as a loving king who's going to shepherd you through this life. Sometimes, as we walk through this world, our souls are dry. We find ourselves on islands, and even when people are next to us, we still can feel so and so and so alone. It's the complexity of humanity in a fallen world. But when we want Christ and we see him, as the only remedy, the only remedy for who we are and what we are, then we want to drink more of him. We want that living water. We want that refreshing sense of God continues to cleanse me of my sin. 
Don't run around in, in your sin feeling like you have to make up for what you've done. That is, that's one of the ways in which we have, as fallen, fallen human beings think we've got to make up for what we've done. We've got to make up before we can come to the Lord. We've got to clean ourselves up. We've got to do something for God to accept us. That is absolutely a lie of Satan. Because if Christ went through the humiliation he went through, then he has opened a door to all of us and we have no excuse to walk in. Freely, fully, even when we have just sinned for the infinite amount of times that we do every day, he's there and he welcomes us in. I wish we could have a, I wish I could have a better understanding of this. I wish we as Christians would so that we could delight more in what we have in Christ. Do you need grace? Grace is a result of this savior. Charles Spurgeon wrote one time and I'll, I'll, I'll close on with this. He asked the question, do you sometimes feel so thirsty for grace that you could drink the Jordan dry? More than a river could hold is given to you, so drink abundantly, for Christ has prepared a bottomless sea of grace to fill you with all the fullness of God. Do not be frugal, he says. Do not doubt your Savior. Do not limit the Holy One of Israel. Be great in your experience of his all-sufficiency. Be great in your praises of his bounty. And in heaven, you will pour out great treasures of gratitude at his feet. Gratitude. If we live grateful lives we'd live happier lives. If we live grateful lives because our eyes are fixed on Christ, we would live happier lives. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks. We give you thanks for bearing with us so patiently. You are so merciful. We pray for that mercy every day. We pray for that mercy now. And we thank you that it's, it's clearly seen. Calvary is the greatest expression of your mercy. Help us to live with our eyes fixed on the Savior, not simply as one who was humiliated for a time, but to fix our eyes on the exalted, glorified King so that we see that he is preparing a place for us. And this is not our permanent home. Give us a greater faith and thankfulness for your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.